This is Books for Breakfast, a podcast where we talk about books and writing. I'm Enda Wiley. And I'm Peter Sir. And you're all very welcome to this morning's show. On this morning's show, we mark the passing of one great poet and the elevation to Nobel honours of another. And our Toaster Challenge guest is non-fiction writer and novelist Neil Hegarty. So the coffee's made. The toast is on. And the books are on the table. We begin this week with Derek Mahan, one of our greatest poets who died earlier this month. Yeah, it is. It's really sad to think that he's gone. I mean, Derek Mann was one of Ireland's most accomplished and brilliant poets, I think. His poems were always lyrical, witty, ironic, cosmopolitan. I mean, there was a huge frame of reference in his poetry, I think, which meant that his poetry had a kind of impressive global perspective to it. I mean, what did you think of his work, Peter? Well, first, I mean, just to say, because you, you, can, you can never really get used to, to poets dying. It's been a really bad year, really, because it always seems that they'll somehow prevail eternally or that they'll be there accompanying you on, on your life's journey. But, you know, as I said, it's been a bad year. Karen Carson, Ivan Boland, uh, Derek Mahan, mm-hmm. you know, and it's strange because he, he seemed to have become almost an accidental laureate of the hope at the end of the pandemic tunnel recently with the viral everything is is going to be all right. But it certainly seemed to give great hope to people during the pandemic. He was a rare kind of spirit, wasn't he, Peter? Yeah, he was a rare kind of spirit. I mean, a kind of insider, outsider, supremely gifted, preferring to see the world, if you like, from the edge and to kind of align himself with people and objects on the margins, whether it's you know, lost hubcaps or abandoned garages, disused sheds or the apotheosis of tins or Ovid exiled mm. in Thomas. But, you know, there was a great, I mean, I mean, in some ways he was kind of an old fashioned poet. I mean, there was an old fashioned sort of decorum nearly or grace, but also a kind of ferocious, sly and mischievous wit and, a you know, a kind of sense of a kind of Beckettian melancholy, but also more than that, a need to break through that into something, something like celebration like that poem about the life of a leaf that might come out right this this winter. Yeah, I love that line. And do you, do you have a poem that you would like to read of his Peter? I thought I would just pick on on this one that I've always liked greatly and it's called it's called Tractatus. It's dedicated to Aidan Higgins and Alana Hopkin. The world is everything that is the case from the fly giving up in the coal shed to the winged victory of Samothrace. Give blame, praise to the fumbling God who hides shamefacedly his aged face, whose light retires behind its veil of cloud. The world, though, is also so much more. Everything that is the case imaginatively. Tacitus believed mariners could hear the sun sinking into the western sea. And who would question that titanic roar, the steam rising wherever the edge may be? But I just love that idea of the world being everything that is the case imaginatively. A poem that I really loved by him is called Courtyards in Delft, which he wrote in 1981. And it richly recreates Peter de Hook's go- Dutch Golden Age painting. You know that painting, Peter, of a courtyard in Delft, um, which he'd painted in 1659. But I I love the details of the painting. Yeah. But I love the the way he captures the painting in the poem, the intricacy of the language, the trim composure of trees, the dirty dog, the fiery gin. gin. I think it's one of his finest poems. Just because I, I remember seeing it just before you read it. I mean, I could because I can remember I remember seeing that years ago. Uh, actually, mm-hmm. and because I was working, I think, in, in Poetry Ireland uh, years ago and, and it won a prize. 
before it was oh, published. And, and so I, ma- I actually saw the manuscript of the, mm. of the collection courtyards in Delft. And, and yeah. before it was, it was published by, by gallery presses courtyards in Delft before going on to be published in the hunt by night. But so I remember just reading that poem for the first time and being totally blown away by it. Um, I think it is, it is, it is one of the most extraordinary Mahan poems, I think. Yeah, I think it's a brilliant poem to read because I love actually reading it out loud as well. There's a huge sonic power to it. It's commanding. It's memorable. As I said earlier, uh, passionate intensity. And also, you know, the way he always had that kind of formal power to his work, its structure and its, its rhymes. But then there's the intelligence there, which is always apparent in his poems. And there's a, sh- a startling shift in the poem where he remarks, I lived there as a boy. Do you remember that line, Peter? And we kind of sense then the coming conflict in Ireland between the Mil- Williamite armies and the Catholics, um, which culminated in the Battle of the Boyne in 1690. So there's this amazing kind of historical reference at play in the poem as well. So he wrote this poem for Gordon Woods. And would you would you like me to read it, Peter? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oblique light on the trite, on brick and tile, immaculate masonry and everywhere that water tap, that broom and wooden pail to keep it so. House proud, the wives of artisans pursue their thrifty lives among scrubbed yards, modest but adequate. Foliage is sparse and clings. No breeze ruffles the trim composure of those trees. No spinet playing, emblematic of the harmonies and disharmonies of love. No lewd fish, no fruit, no wide-eyed bird about to fly its cage, while a virgin listens to her seducer, mars the chaste perfection of the thing and the thing made. Nothing is random, nothing goes to waste. We miss the dirty dog, the fiery gin. That girl with her back to us, who waits for her man to come home for his tea, will wait till the paint disintegrates and ruined dikes admit the Assyrian sea. Yet this is life too, and the cracked outhouse door of a verifiable fact as vividly mnemonic as the sunlit railings that front the houses opposite. I live there as a boy, and know the cold littering in its shed, late afternoon lambency informing the deal table, the ceiling cradled in a radiant spool. I must be lying low in a room there, a strange child with a taste for verse, while my hard-nosed companions dream of fire and sword upon parched veld and fields of rain-swept gorse. And thanks to Gallery Press for allowing us to read these poems in tribute to Derek Mahan. And we should also say that there's a, actually a new collection of Derek Mahan poems out from Gallery Press as well, called Washing Up. And these are poems prompted by the, the COVID-19 pandemic. And I'm sure they would be a great addition to his to his work. And we look forward to, to reading that as well. Yeah, we definitely look forward to reading that. That's great. And yeah, you're right, Peter. Thanks to Gallery Press for giving us permission to read those two wonderful poems. So there was other news this week, wasn't there, Peter? There was better news because the Nobel Prize for Literature was awarded to the American poet Louise Glick. I'm just wondering, did you expect that, Peter? Was it a surprise to you? Well, it's I don't ever expect anything from Nobel Prizes in, in that they're entirely unpredictable, I think. And I don't necessarily take them that seriously either. But I think that she is a very interesting poet. You know, Derek Mahan could have been a Nobel Prize winning poet as well. But I, I think, and plenty of sublime poets have gone without without mm-hmm. big rewards and their work isn't any less valuable. But I think, uh, look, is a very interesting poet. And like actually Mahan, she's a poet of great intelligence and subtlety 
as well as she has a great gift for a sort of plangent singing line. And I've actually been following her, I suppose, since I got my hands. I suppose it's not her first book, but her second book, The House on Marshland. Uh, I came across that years ago and I was just kind of hooked by it. There's some some great mm-hmm. poems in, in that. And, you know, like she she published lots of books, actually. She was quite prolific. I mean, there's books like Meadowlands, The Wild Iris that she got the Pulitzer Prize for. Averno is a great book that I was reading um, recently, The Village, which I think you reviewed, didn't you, for the for the, for the DRB? Yeah, I did. Uh, yeah, I remember if you yeah. that for the Irish Times, actually. She's she's also an, an excellent essayist, wasn't she, Peter? I really like the essays. And, and I think, you know, it's funny because I've been rereading Proofs and Theories, the essays and poetry, which the Echo Press published way back in 1994. And I think... One of the most telling essays in that is Against mm. Sincerity, which is, it's kind of like a meditation on self in poetry. And she wants to break down the often automatic alignment that readers make between the, if you like, the living, experiencing, autobiographical I and the often very different identity mm. of, of the speaker of a poem. And I think that's, it very much applies to her own work. I mean, she says, we are unnerved, I suppose, by the thought that authenticity in the poem is not produced by sincerity and she has she's, you know she's an image of maybe people looking at looking for kindliness in, in the face of a poet like frost and finding it maybe odd because he you know he's different from 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 the poems and i think we're very literal minded we want the speaker and the poet to be the same we want poetry to be some sort of literal testimony coming out of people's lives like we want you know or people want kind of pure unmediated confessionism and so so she's very much separating herself from that whole tradition, saying this is not this is not what I do. I mean, you have your very strong, forceful kind of lyric eye there, but it's 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 not necessarily yeah. or isn't just Louise Glick that's that's speaking. It's more kind of diverse and interesting than that. I mean, it's interesting to, to see as well what the chair of the committee of the Nobel Prize said. He said Louise Glick's voice is unmistakable. It's candid and uncompromising, and it signals this poet wants to be understood. But he said also her voice is full of humour and biting wit. I I feel there's also kind of an exposed hard edgedness to her work as well. And I like that she doesn't want things to be too easy for the reader. She said, I just like poems that feel too complete, the seal too tight. I just like being herded into certainty, which I think is a very interesting comment. It is. I mean, it, but it's also it's like what um, Jonathan Galassi, who was her longtime friend and an editor he's the president of Ferrar Strauss and Jira and this is he's this is quoted in the in the New York Times this couple of mm-hmm. days ago and it said he said her work is like an inner conversation maybe she's talking to herself maybe she's talking to us there's a kind of irony to it yeah um, and I like that one thing that's very constant in her work he says is that that inner voice she's always evaluating experience against some ideal that it never matches like I thought that was a kind of an acute comment yeah uh, as well I mean also she herself I like her attitude to writing and she when she heard the news on Thursday she said I think you have always to be surprised and to to be in a way a beginner again otherwise she said I'd bore myself to tears (laughs) which is quite good yeah yeah yeah. which I think is very good but if there's one poem of hers that I think gives a real sense of her huge talent and the bravery of her voice is uh, the poem The Wild Iris. Do you know that poem, Peter? I particularly like the... Sure, yeah, that, that, that's from the collection of that title, the one that, that yeah, she, she she won the Pulitzer for that. Yeah, and I love the opening. She, she says, at the end of my suffering, there is a door. Hear me out, that which you call death, I remember. Overheard noises, branches of the pine shifting, then nothing. The weak sun flickered over the dry surface. So it's very clear and commanding and distinctive voice, isn't it? That's what you're hearing. So, um, I mean, definitely a week where we had two very different things going on there. 
But congratulations to Louise Glick. And it's great because it brings us back to her work again. So anyone who has not read her collection, The Wild Iris, I would definitely recommend it. But I know, Peter, you have a poem there of hers that you really want to read as well. Do you want to tell us a bit about it and why you've chosen it? I, suppose, I mean, it's a well-known poem. It's from that book, The House of on Marshland. And I suppose it's just because I came across it a, a long time ago and it was just it's, just, it's stuck in my mind. And I know it's, 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 you know, it has become a very well-known poem of hers. And it's kind of typical of the way that she worked as a poet. It's called The Undertaking. The darkness lifts, imagine, in your lifetime. There you are, cased in clean bark. You drift through weaving rushes, fields flooded with cotton. You are free. The river films with lilies. Shrubs appear. Shoots thicken into palm. And now all fear gives way. The light looks after you. You feel the waves' goodwill as arms widen over the water. Love, the key is turned. Extend yourself. It is the Nile. The sun is shining. Everywhere you turn is luck. So thanks, Peter, for reading that from Louise Glick's collection, The House on Marshland. And I certainly, for one, will be going back to look at her work again. So it's great to have a a short chat about her there. So let's move on, Peter, because we actually got out this week and we got to see something very exciting up in Emma. We went to see The Great Hunger, the play which the Abbey put on in collaboration with Emma. And it was a lashing rainy, cold evening. But I have to say it was so exciting to go there and to see a live performance. I think it was 1983 when I last saw it, actually, when I was only a young one. And when Tom McIntyre and director Patrick Mason collaborated in an adaptation of The Great Hunger at the Peacock Theatre. A a strange, an adaptation that kind of did without his words in a lot of ways. There were very few of Kavanagh's words in that, but a lot of a lot of, I suppose, kind of gestures and, and sort of experimental kind of movement and and, and act- activity of all kinds. Tom Hickey, Tom Hickey in the title role, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. I remember there was a kind of a, a very innovative kind of fusing of word and image and movement. It was quite startling. I remember being really shocked by it. I, I think I was, you know, I wasn't really that old actually at the time. And it was uh, my first dramatic introduction to Patrick Kavanagh. But this new theatrical version has been directed by Katrina McLaughlin and Colonel Morrison. And I think they take ownership of Kavanagh's poem in a really, really exciting way. It was fun being there, even though it was raining under our umbrellas and seeing the actors, each of them placed, given their own space within the courtyard. It was great to see it, wasn't it, Peter? And what a fine cast as well. Yeah, I mean, I mean, obviously we didn't get the full whack in the sense that the, the, the original idea was, to, and would, many people would have experienced that, is to, play it in the grounds of Emma. Mm-hmm. So you're kind of following the actors from site to site within the grounds of the Royal Hospital, Kilmainham, as they perform the poem. But as you say, yeah, the night we went, it was pouring with rain and we stood in the courtyard under our umbrellas, which could have been a kind of bleak experience, but it wasn't be, as you, because, mm-hmm. as you say, I mean, the, so they, they, we moved around the courtyard and, and, they, and they were there, the actors, kind of in those corridors around. And yeah, they were. Yeah, it was a great cast. I mean, he had people like Emmett Byrne and Liam Carney was in it, Peter Coonan, Dervil Crotty, Andrea Irvine. Elder Methven, Breathing Yachts, and many more, and, and they had musicians as well. So it was a very, it was a, it was a really, uh, you know, powerful cast. And I think what was interesting about it is that the words really came through. Kavanagh's words, and you realise because again, if you don't, if you haven't read the, the Great mm-hmm. Hunger recently, and I hadn't, and I kind of went back to it actually after the production, and I read it again, and I tend to I often avoid it because it's such a, it's you think okay, it's 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 a bleak poem about sexual loneliness and waste and despair in kind of in kind of rural Ireland 
And at, at the same time, it's it's Kavanaugh, I suppose, attacking certain kind of stereotypes of the mm. happy, the supposedly happy life of the of the peasants, all that kind of stuff happening. But the actual words that he gives to you know the narrator who's telling the the story of Maguire and his and his mother, the domineering mother, the mother mm. with a venomous drawl and a wizened face like a moth-eaten like moth-eaten leatherette. Do you remember like that? Oh yeah, the mother, the mother was brilliant. Yeah, then his mother, tall, hard as a Protestant spire, came down the stairs barefoot at the kettle call and talked to her son sharply. Did you let the hens out you? Yeah, Yeah, I know. She had a wizened face like moth-eaten leatherette. Two black cats peeped between the banisters and gloated over the bacon fizzling pan. Oh, yeah, it was brilliant. The words were amazing. And it opened with Liam Carney. He was the first incarnation of Maguire that we came across with Lisa right. O'Neill, the Cavan singer, singing a raucous, guttural song, the rain coming down. And then there was a huge symmetry to the play because at the end of it, then we finally came back to Mark Lambert and he was a really strong, feisty Maguire. It was a fantastic ending to the play, wasn't it? And also you have to say, like, I have such sympathy for actors and theatre people at the moment with everything being cancelled. It was brilliant to see them even in the torrential rain with their old farmer coats on and their wellies. And did you notice as well the way they still had nature throughout it? They had, you know, little bits of grass sticking out of their pockets to give the sense that we were in rural Ireland. It was it was fantastically produced production, I think. Sarah Keating, when she went to see it and she wrote a review in The Times, said everything about the studied architecture of this ambitious production reveals, as Kavanagh did, that there is beauty even in the dying yeah. grasses. So I thought that was that was very um, astutely observed. Yeah, I mean, fair play to everybody. And as you said, Peter, it brings us back to the actual words of Kavanagh. He was way ahead of 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 writers at the time, wasn't he? The way he depicted the loneliness. Just totally sort of brutally honest. And but and it was just huge power. I mean I just think of lines like Patrick Maguire was still six months behind life, his mother six months ahead of it, his yeah. sister straddle-legged across it, one leg in hell and the other in heaven. And between the purgatory of middle-age virginity, she prayed for release to heaven or hell, you know? And it's just, so it's, 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 it's full of that. I mean, it's, it is miserable in, often in, in its depiction of this kind of, of this, the total, the bleak wastage of yeah. Maguire's life. And, you know, the the domineering mother, yeah. The domineering mother and the sister, of course, as well. And then lines like, oh, Christ, I am locked in a stable with pigs and cows forever. Oh, so it's so bleak, but bleak. But we still had a great time, didn't we, Peter? It was just such a a thrill to to see live theatre. To see live theatre, exactly. So here's hoping that we get to see more. But thank you to the Abbey and to Emma for for giving us such a great night out. And also to, as we were speaking about Louise Glick there and Derek Mann, it brings you back to the work. And I think that's really vital. So that's it. I can't think of another ending. (laughs) Okay, everybody. Thanks for listening. It will be my best piece. The linen was stretched on a frame now, and it was sized. The glue heated and applied rapidly. It was ready. The water and the pigments were ready also, and set out in their neat little dishes, cinnabar and lead white. Azurite, ultramarine, verdigris and smalt, and beautiful, profound malachite. She would prepare the distemper, batch by batch, 
the colours would blaze if she had anything to do with it and leap from the cloth and live and breathe. They would never be seen, but this was the very least of her worries. This was the very intention. Later, much later, days later, for the plan to begin and conclude this painting in less than no time, to execute it in a flash with one eye on the sands of her life running rapidly, this plan came to nothing. It had to be done correctly. It had to be done with love and pride and how foolish she had been even to think of dashing this piece off in a trice. Later, she could step back and see this blazing and leaping for herself, the tiny sparks of brilliant white and the cinnabar and the verdigris. Yes, they were intense. They blazed as though alive. The malachite at the center of all breathed and inhaled and exhaled with life. The distemper, color by color, had soaked through the linen as she had intended it should. The fabric now was heavy and sodden, but it would dry and it would be rolled away and she would leave her instructions to the letter and they would be carried out when the time came. When the time came, there was little time left. Oh, what's going to happen next? That blazing and leaping, what beautiful writing. Well, that was writer. What's gonna <laughs> what is going to happen next exactly? Well, that was Neil Hegarty uh, reading an opening piece from his recent novel, The Jewel, published by Head of Zeus in 2019. Neil Hegarty was born in Derry. He is, as you can hear, a really great writer, prolific and diverse. His novels include The Jewel, which we've just heard from there, and Inch Levels was his debut novel, which was published in 2016 and was shortlisted for the Kerry Group Novel of the Year Award. Neil has also written essays and short stories for publications such as The Irish Times, The Daily Telegraph, BBC History Magazine, The Huffington Post, and literary journals such as The Stinging Fly and The Dublin Review. And non-fiction books include Frost, That Was the Life That Was, the authorised biography of Sir David Frost, and The Secret History of Our Streets, which was written for BBC Books in 2012, was The Social History of 20th Century London. And there's also The Story of Ireland, again published by BBC Books, written to accompany a new BBC RT television history of Ireland. Neil lives in Dublin with his partner, John Lovett. And I have to say, on a personal level, congratulations must go to the both of them, as they've just recently got married. <laughs> so congratulations, Neil <laughs> and John. And you're very, very welcome Thank to you. Books for Breakfast. So, Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great to have you, Neil. And um, I could have just sat there and listened to that, that novel all day. It was absolutely wonderful to hear it. But to start off with, I just wanted to ask you really about your books about Dublin, because one of my favourite poets, Louis MacNeese, a northerner just like yourself, he wrote arguably the best poem, I think, about Dublin called Dublin. And you, a dairyman, have also written about the city, two books, in fact. You've written Dublin, A View from the Ground, A Sweeping History of Dublin, right up to the present day, and Waking Up in Dublin, an exploration of Dublin's music culture. So I was just wondering, coming from the north, Neil, what was it about Dublin that so fascinated you about the city that you wanted to write about it? And not only that, that you wanted to end up living here in glorious Dublin 8, home glorious to books Dublin for breakfast 8. as well. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I came here to university and I stayed. And then in the early 2000s, I was asked to write Dublin of You from the Ground. So it was a commissioned piece and that was that was lovely. It's it's lovely to be approached and to, and to be asked to write a book. But the, the interesting 
thing for me in writing that book, I, I had lived in the city at that point for about 15 years. And I thought, you know, I, I knew it pretty well. I know its streets, I know its geography, I know its culture and everything else. And the, the fascinating part of writing Dublin A View from the Ground in, in particular was really to um, see how little I knew about the city that I now call home. Mm-hmm. That there were all sorts of facets and aspects of the city that I really didn't know anything about. So mm-hmm. it was a journey of exploration for me. Mm-hmm. And I decided that I would I would write it from the point of view of a sort of flaneur wandering the streets, roaming the the highways and the byways mm-hmm. to keep that sense of movement and freshness and mobility all the way all the way through and also you know to to glance back over my shoulder at Joyce and at other writers who've done the same Mm -hmm. thing so it's a kind of a homage to Dublin and to my my sort of literary ancestors Mm -hmm. Um, and it was it was a way of realizing that you can live in a city forever and ever and ever and it can always be fresh. It can always mm-hmm. be a new place. And there's always something to discover. So that was yeah. a great thing. That was a great, yeah. a great realization that I came to in, in, the, in the course of writing the book. Mm-hmm. Well, you spoke about movement and flow there. And it is, as you said, fantastic to discover and rediscover in a city. There's great movement and flow in your your wonderful novel, The Jewel. And another great Dublin 8 writer, Henrietta McCurvey. I'm really plugging Dublin 8 today. Um, <laughs> she said in The Independent that The Jewel, she wrote last year, is one of the year's gems, which is a really great uh, thing to say about the book, I think. And also The Spectator said it's a work of art in more ways than one. So, Neil, you've written a work of art. But at the the, the heart of the book is a painting, which I have to say, I really enjoyed reading this book. It's a painting painted in 1839 by Emily Sanborn, isn't it? A Victorian artist. She's kind of forgotten about. And there are rumours. I love this mystery that the, the painting was buried with her. I hope I'm not giving away too much. But then her family exhume it. And it's this magical thing that hasn't faded at all. So there's kind of a mysterious imaginative quality uh, it's yes. a great premise for a novel and there's a puzzle a theft a search how did the idea originally come to you neil if you're not too exhausted by describing this again but not not in the least it's a pleasure uh, i had always been for a long time i've been interested in looking at paintings i don't have any background in art art history at all but i i used to spend quite a lot of time in the national gallery of, of ireland because i live five minutes walk from it so I, I got into the habit of looking at paintings, uh, the, the kind of mystique I think, which comes from art galleries, which I, I don't, I don't, I don't agree with. Anybody can look at a painting. Anyone can take something from a painting. That sense of mystique left me, and I began to take a lot of pleasure in looking at art. Mm-hmm. And I was reading a review of the Beyond Caravaggio exhibition, which you might remember, and I was in the National yeah. Gallery about f- five years ago. Yeah, oh, I remember it, big, yeah. Yeah, it was a big, enormous one. And I was reading a review of it because it had opened at the National Gallery in London, and I thought, what a huge undertaking this must be, and how do people bring all these these masterworks from all over the world and bring them together, bring them to mm-hmm. London, then bring them to Dublin, the insurance, the security, the, the awful nightmare of, mm-hmm. of creating an exhibition like this. And then I suddenly thought, well, what would happen if one of these paintings was stolen? Because mm-hmm. 
these things happen, as we know. Yeah. And that was the the gleam, the, the first germ of the idea, and it all came from there. I, I had to do a little bit of, of of initial homework to make sure that it wasn't too far-fetched an idea. Mm. And honestly, five minutes on Google showed me that there's no such thing as far-fetched when it comes to art theft, when it mm. comes to the, the stealing of, of priceless paintings all, all over the world that happens all the time in the most improbable mm. ways. So yeah. I realized that the, the initial idea I had was not improbable. In fact, it was highly probable. And the whole, mm. the whole novel, the whole story just flowed from, from there in a, yeah. in a really sort of clear way and in a really fast way. I, I was able to write it in just over a year, which is great. Oh my gosh, you were kind of gifted it then, that you were hit by the muse, weren't you, Neil, which is fantastic. But that idea that it flowed smoothly, it does flow very smoothly. And you've got three characters, Roisin and John and Ward, and they're all very damaged in their own distinctive way, I think. that She's the gallery curator, she's got a past trauma. John's the thief, he's disillusioned as an artist. Ward goes off in search of the book. And you skillfully, I think, move between these three characters. Did you enjoy creating those individual lives and moving between them, not just in Dublin, but you moved to London and there's an international element to the novel as well. Was that exciting for you to to enter their worlds? It was very satisfying. I really, I really loved it, even though I was telling three quite difficult stories. It was it was great mm-hmm. to have the opportunity to to bring bring three very different, very individual stories, very three very different people to life to fill in their backstory in Ireland, in England, mm-hmm. abroad, but also to show the, the similarities between these three ost- ostensibly very, very different lives. I was very interested in this idea mm-hmm. of what happens wh- when something happens in your early life, uh, a trauma, or as, uh, as I, I visualize it in my head, a, f- a moment of fract- fracture. What happens if that f- fracture mm-hmm. as a result of a trauma, what if it doesn't heal properly? What if it heals badly? Yeah. How do you go on living your life in that way? And is healing is healing mm-hmm. eventually possible? Yeah. Uh, and each of these three characters are, yeah. as you say, they're slightly damaged. And I wanted to track them through their lives and to show what happens in order for them to, to sort of get a sense of the right shape and the right kind of momentum back into their lives. And is that always possible? Yeah, is it possible? That's true. I mean, they're very profound questions, really, aren't they? But what I loved about the book as well, Neil, was your very distinctive style of writing. I enjoyed Inch Levels as well. I know that Inch Levels was endorsed by John Banville, a writer himself, it has to be said, thoroughly enjoys the texture of language. I was just wondering, can you talk just a little bit about that, that um, you know that there is a lyrical kind of beauty to it. It's it's very close to poetry, I have to say, um, and I love it. Like, is this hard for you to achieve, or is it something that just comes naturally out of you? I think that the the lyrical imp- impulse is is very much part of Irish writing. I, I think it's something that comes to mm-hmm. us naturally. It, it seems to me that when you're writing prose. I'm, I'm conscious I'm speaking to a poet and you, you have a whole whole different set of experiences and kind of muscles to work with in your writing. But w- with prose, I think it really has to, it has to earn its place. It can't just flow on and on and on and on. Um, it has to be used 
in a, mm. if I can put it this way, in a correct way. So, so I, I, yeah. I really enjoyed the that lyrical impulse coming through in my description of the painting, for example. So the the eponymous jewel, mm-hmm. the colours and the yeah. textures and, and the vibrancy of it coming coming through. But sometimes it isn't appropriate yeah. in describing a life and setting setting out a life. Not all lives are are underwritten yeah. by a kind of lyricism. So it has to be used in a correct way. Yeah. I, I, I don't know what that says to you, Yanda, as a, as a as a, as a poet. No, it seems that in the novel, maybe I'm getting this wrong, there is a functionality there. You have to get through the story, so it can't always be. There has to be a balance, yeah. I think. But I loved your Indeed. quote from Tom Gunn as well, the poet, when he said, I see, well, he said, I see how shadow in the painting brims with a real shadow. So there is yeah. that kind of mystery and the shadow of the characters in their lives. But just finally, on this part of the chat, Neil, is there a lot of other projects? Are there a lot of other projects going on in your life at the moment? I know you love gardening, but are, is, are there any writing <laughs> projects going on? Uh, I'm coming to the end of a new novel. Right. Um, I I began that before the pandemic hit, which I'm very grateful about. Uh, I had a had a project underway. I knew the the beginning and the middle and the end of it. If I can right. put it that way. Well done. Yeah. So I was able to keep a sense of of kind of momentum going in these these strange times. Yeah. So I, I feel that I'm I'm close to the end of that now. Okay. And um, is it and is I've it got, a historical novel? It is a historical Yay, novel. I guessed, I guessed. I think that would be, that would be really interesting to read. I feel that would suit you definitely, Neil. <laughs> <laughs> it's much more of a historical novel, actually, than the the jewel is. Oh, so right. it was uh, it was a whole. It felt like a whole a whole new thing for me, a whole new project. Oh my god! Well, that's just what you need in lockdown—a whole new project to get you through it. Yes. Well, I think Neil, I think can so. I just say thank you so much? It was great to chat to you there. We pass each Pleasure. other on our Dublin Eight Streets, but it's great to talk to you really like this um, about books and writing. So now I think it's time to move on to dun, 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 the toaster challenge, um, and I think Peter is getting. Are you getting the toast ready there? Yeah, he's, I think he's getting it ready. So, Neil, listen, you've brought in a book that you really, really means something to you. It's touched you in lots of different ways. And I'm excited to hear about it because it's a book that I had, I had actually nearly forgotten about. You've brought it back to the fore. So we're just getting ready. I'm going to count you in and you're going to talk for maybe two or three minutes. So we've Mr. Sir keeping an eye on us as well. OK, so here we go. One, two, three. And off you go, Neil. Well. My my chosen novel is The War Between the Tits by the American writer of fiction and nonfiction, Alison Lurie. Uh, and as you say, Lurie is one of my absolute fav- favorite writers. I read her work with you know constant pleasure. And The War Between the Tits is one of my very favorite novels. Uh, and I've read it lots and lots of times. It was published in 1974, and it's set at the beginning of the 1970s. In the the small and I think you could say the highly insular world of Corinth, a college town in upstate New New, New York, it's a, a stand-in for um, Ithaca, and Corinth University really is a stand-in for um, Cornell. The context of the book is all important. the The U.S. is convulsed by student unrest, by social and racial tensions, by protest against the war in Vietnam, and it's against this backdrop that we we discover Brian and Erica Tate, the perfect couple. Brian Tate is a a self-important professor of politics in his 40s at Corinth University. Erica Tate is his self-important wife. 
And the idealism of their marriage is a source of enduring satisfaction to them both, which makes the very public and sudden disintegration of his marriage, and this is a result of Brian's infidelity with a student, a shock and the most enormous challenge to them both. So how will they hang on to their sense of virtue, of rectitude in the world? How can they deal with this um, dawning sense that they are actually flawed, just like everybody else? How can they be made to compromise when they've never compromised about anything in their lives? And of course, the, the title of the novel itself is a riff on the war between the states, the US Civil War. And the title underlines the, the old adage that the, the personal really is political. Lurie's take, I think, sometimes she's compassionate, sometimes she's scathing. And in this way, and in lots of other ways, actually, she really reminds me of Jane, Jane Austen. And the critical thing is this, and this is why I, I, I chose it today, and uh, I, I used to think of the war between the Tates as in some ways a, a kind of a period piece. Mm-hmm. But these days I read it and I see its tumultuous backdrop being repeated in America today, which makes it, it seems to me, a very prescient and a very chilling, as well as a very funny read. And, and I see to my, to my pleasure that the novel has just been re- reissued, which I'm really, really glad about. So that's my book for the Toaster Challenge, The War Between the Tates by Alison Lurie. And I, I urge everyone to read it. Oh, thank you so much, Neil. And it's incredible to think it was published 46 years ago. It's still standing the test of time. As you said, it's still highly relevant. Highly, highly relevant. I mean, highly relevant. Um, I suppose young people think they're experiencing things for the first time. But she she's explaining something that happened way back in the 70s, loads of different things. And also interesting historically, I think, to go back to that time with the Vietnam War, the start of the feminist movement, the generation gap, sexual liberation, all these things. It brings to mind as well writers like Saul Bellow, doesn't it? And the kind of, you know, who were brilliant as well, writing about the campus novel or even somebody like, um, say, Philip Roth as well. Uh, all brilliant mm-hmm. writers. So you've certainly got me wanting to go back there. Um, I don't know, Peter, if you want to add anything to that. It's fascinating. I'm very interested in the idea that this is something that you've gone back to and reread and that it's held up. Like it's 74, you know, that's, mm. that's, a, that's, a, that's a, long, a long time ago. And I suppose... Like I, a lot of people would also know her for, for the book that she published, I think it was maybe about 10 years after that, The for, Foreign Affairs. And, and that's all. And it's not, yeah, it's, that's it's, right. Again, it's kind of, it's two American professors and, and they're very kind of, so she, she obviously loves that milieu of kind of slightly waspish academic mm. kind of yes. um, America. Yeah, I think actually one of her colleagues, uh, the critic Jonathan Culler, he jokingly mentioned once that they were all really petrified in Cornell that she was going to write a sequel <laughs> to the war between the Tates. <laughs> so imagine oh, yeah. having her in the department, you'd be thinking, <laughs> oh my God, I'm going to end up in one of her books. But yeah, <laughs> I can't say a word. Yeah, fantastic. I can't say a word. I can't say a word in front of the person. I mean, there is one, a really chilling aspect to this this. This book, I, I said that I, 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 it used to read as a period piece to me, because there, there is, there are episodes in the book where they, they go off and try mm-hmm. and procure an abortion, which of course in those days is illegal, and they have to go to a backstreet abortionist, and there's talk of a mother and child home, and 
it's only now as you see the prospect of Roe versus Wade being um, pushed yeah. back in America that you realize that this book is yeah. prescient in all sorts of ways. And it's if it ever was a period piece, it doesn't doesn't feel like it is yeah. so any anymore. Yeah. So that's it's another strange, strange aspect to the book. Yeah. It's really wasn't she very brave as well, a brave writer and an honest writer to be depicting all of that. Well, Neil, yeah. I want to go and find that book. Start. <laughs> I might run up the road and borrow it from you. So um, definitely, I'd recommend, and so would Neil, all listeners, Peter too, uh, to have a look at the War Between the Tates. It's published by Random House in 1974, but as Neil said, it's brilliant that it's being reissued. Uh, so thanks, Neil, for coming in to talk about that. And also, it was wonderful to hear that piece and hear you talking about the writing of The Jewel, your own novel published by Head of Zeus in 2019. And Books for Breakfast will definitely be looking forward to your new novel um, coming out hopefully very soon, <laughs> Neil. <laughs> hopefully very soon. As hopefully usual, soon. I have to say all details about the books <laughs> we discussed today will be available on booksforbreakfast.buzzsprout.com. So thank you, Neil Hegarty. Thank you very much. It's been great. We, I think we've reached the end of our Books for Breakfast podcast this morning. I'm definitely rushing off to have more coffee. And I'm Enda Wiley and I've Peter Sarah here with me. And Peter, would you like to tell everyone about the details of the podcast if they'd like to listen again? Well, you can subscribe at all the usual sources, Google and Apple and so on. And if you want to check out the notes that go along with this podcast, you can go to booksforbreakfast.buzzsprout.com. And yeah, so... We'll be back again next Thursday morning. We'll have the toast on. We'll have the kettle boiling. We will have more books to discuss. And we're looking forward to having you here. So goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. Goodbye.